My name is John McGowan and welcome to Discussions in Tunbridge Wells, the podcast produced by the Salomon Centre for Applied Psychology in Kent. Today I'm joined by two of our usual panel, Angela Gilchrist. Hi John. I should just say Angela, you're no longer of this parish but you are coming back to do the odd guest appearance which is very welcome. Thank you. Angela has now uh, moved, on from, uh, moved on from the Salomon Centre but still involved with us and Rachel Terry. Hello. Now, this particular issue is uh, a bit of a post-election chat, and this is the panel uh, that we had when we started off this podcast with a discussion about the Brexit referendum, just before the Brexit referendum, almost a year to the day. Uh, It feels like about a century ago to me since that. Uh, just so much has happened. It feels more recent to you, Rachel. Much more recent, and we still don't know what Brexit may look like or whether we definitely will have Brexit, as far as I'm concerned. And also, in some sense, you know, quite a lot has moved and changed, but a big central issue kind of remains the same and highly unresolved in, in many ways. Um, so, as I said, this is a, an election, post-election discussion. So, uh, the first thing that we did, rather than try and recap what's happened and where we are ourselves, we talked to one of our colleagues in our school, a political scientist, Mark Bennister. We, we asked Mark to basically take us through some of the recent happenings. Now, Mark um, has a new book out called The Leadership Capital Index, A New Approach to Party Political Leadership. And... He talks a little bit about that in the interview, but as leadership and leadership issues were quite salient to what has gone on in the last few weeks, we thought he was a good place to start. Hi, Mark. Obviously, we've had an election in the last few days. It feels like longer. We're recording on Tuesday and it already feels like about a month ago. And we've been left with a hung parliament, no overall overall majority. I just wondered if you could just give us a a quick description of just how, how did we get how did we get here and why do you think we got we got here i mean obviously there could be a very long answer to that or a very short answer uh, i've been scratching my head how we've got here myself but the the backstory to this is really uh theresa may was persuaded by those around her and took a decision herself uh to engineer a snap election back in april uh on the basis of the hope that she would substantially increase her majority and have a much stronger hand for uh, uh, the forthcoming Brexit negotiations, but also at the same time be able to uh, considerably damage uh, the opposition Labour Party. Um, the Conservatives were riding particularly high in the polls. Polls showed around about a 20% point, uh, percentage point lead. And at the time, it was deemed not to have a great deal of risk for her uh, to push people to, to the polls much earlier than they expected. There's another factor as well that uh, Theresa May didn't necessarily have a personal mandate. She's still working from the Cameron uh, Osborne a manifesto from uh, 2015 and was hamstrung by a few things. So uh, there were a few factors playing on her mind when she decided to call a snap election. But as we've seen in this campaign, it didn't go the way that she wanted, uh, which has uh, significantly damaged her personally, uh, damaged her leadership, uh, and also uh, potentially damaging the, the Brexit negotiations uh, and this, really this, uh, the Conservative Party too. You mentioned leadership. Leadership, and I know that leadership is something that you've thought a lot about and uh, written about Tony Blair and Margaret Thatcher and political uh, political leadership more generally. And this particular campaign uh, seemed to involve questions of leadership uh, quite a bit, really. Theresa May being, you know, strong. Oh God, I'm, I'm, I'm loath to say strong and stable leader. At least that was the way that it was originally being pitched. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn being pitched as as not a credible 
leader and it really felt probably more dominated by questions of leadership than really some many other elections I can remember. How, how did that shake out during the course of the campaign? Mm, absolutely, John. This was this was really a, a, a leadership uh, election, and it was framed that way uh, by Theresa May and her advisers, in particular uh, Linton Crosby. Uh, they saw uh, they saw her leadership as being the strength in this election, and Jeremy Corbyn's leadership being weakness. And that's why the Conservative Party decided to uh, frame it that way. But it was a major danger because uh, if you personalise an election campaign uh, this this way. Uh, then when it goes wrong, it comes back on the in- on the individual. Um, but you do need substance to go with it. So if you're uh, the Conservative campaign uh, being personalised, um, but having little substance to it, meant uh, meant that the, all the focus was on the individual leader. And Theresa May, as we saw, uh, didn't uh, didn't agree to television debates. Wanted to avoid engaging with the media. Wanted to avoid engaging with the public, and was exposed very very much as having uh, a poor leadership qualities. Uh, perversely, Jeremy Corbyn, who was thought to be a weak leader in terms of his parliamentary performances, uh, had a lot more substance to campaign on. Whilst he, he, tend to, he tended to uh, suggest that it wasn't about his individual leadership as such, a, a bit of a cult of personality developed around him and others projected leadership onto, onto him. But uh, the Labour Party had substance to work with, which was the, the, main, uh, the main difference. And I think in terms of how we think more broadly about leadership, the way that the uh, Conservatives packaged the uh, the election campaign was really going against uh, the way that uh, uh, leadership in certainly in organisations, in businesses, in the public sector and so on have, have been developing over the last few years. The sort of singular heroic model of leadership has very much been, been pushed out and uh, with a realisation that to get things done, you need a more collective form of leadership. And it seems that the Conservative Party sort of forgot about this or didn't even know about this uh, by pushing cabinet uh, ministers uh, such as Philip Hammond and others uh, to the margins of the campaign. They uh, they stuck with the heroic form of leadership, uh, which was then exposed as lacking inspiration, motivation, or also lacking followers, uh, both at an elite level uh, and uh, and uh, and at uh, electoral uh, level. Uh, not providing vision, not really providing any kind of team, so you could see where the Conservative Party was going. Interestingly, the Conservative, the uh, Labour Party, uh, had a slightly more collective form of leadership. So uh, John McDonnell was very uh, was uh, particularly uh, visible in the leadership camp in the election campaign, but also uh, there was uh, a sense of working with the electorate. So there was a sense that Jeremy Corbyn was was always connecting uh, with the electorate. Well, I wondered if this issue of leadership actually came back in a very particular way. Certain aspects, I mean, obviously there's a, an idea in politics, you know, that something beats nothing. And in the end, it felt that not only did Labour perhaps have something, but it was perhaps something a little bit more optimistic and capturing the, the mood of the moment. But I did I did wonder, there were a couple of things in the Tory manifesto that I was actually quite drawn to, though the, possibly they're quite un-Tory things. So the idea of, you know, willingness to raise taxes, um, not protecting something like the triple lock on pensions, which I have to say struck me as being somewhat unfair towards younger people. Actually, that 
you know, Jeremy Corbyn wasn't suggesting that Labour would abandon these things, but also this issue of what became branded the dementia tax. I mean, in some ways that felt to me to be quite a, a, a big gamble, a brave gamble, brave perhaps in the yes minister sense, but trying to have a more honest conversation about social care, how we square that up against the expectation of inheritances. I'm not saying the policy was necessarily terribly well thought through, but from what you're saying, it sounds like when risks were taken and particularly risks were taken around the expectations of conservative voters there, w- there was no there was nothing to back it up the, the prime minister and her um advisors who've now subsequently resigned her close advisors have now subsequently resigned were just left out to hang um yes i'd agree with that i mean it, it's interesting uh, whether electoral campaigns are, the, are really the, the right and proper place to have very complex uh, policy uh, discussions about what we tend to term as sort of wicked problems, such as um, such as social uh, health and social care funding. By, by wicked problems, you you mean a, a kind of very high level of complexity. Exactly, and there, there, are, there are no simple solutions to. And often you may have had multiple reports saying over many years the uh, tended to encourage a sort of cross-party approach. And these are issues that that, that have very long that very long-term uh, effects um, that you can't often can't deal with or uh, within a within a single parliamentary term. But I think I think it's an interesting point that you that you that you bring up about uh, trying to engage with what are these difficult these wicked problems because that. On the one hand, you can say, well, that's very admirable because we've got we've got some uh, a serious funding problems across the health service and also in social care, uh, and these need to be debated and engaged with. Uh, however, um, they need to uh, it needs to be seen that uh, there's a there's a there's a vision and a plan there rather than uh, it's uh, back of the envelope uh, uh, type type stuff. So. I think that's that's one of the areas where the Conservatives uh, really uh, really came apart. And the, the, uh, you need to explain the policy first before you just just throw something in and explain the way you're going to uh, engage with a with a policy change or potential policy uh, solution. Uh, and I think the the uh, other major issue with this sort of uh, uh, where they came a cropper in terms of policy was was uh, was arrogance. I think because. The assumption that they would uh, that the Conservatives would win a sizable majority meant that they were looking at areas that they could uh, soften up to free to free money for potentially for other projects. Uh, and if that was uh, uh, reducing the uh, getting rid of the triple lock, uh, and that may mean upsetting some of their core votes to the over over 65s and so on, uh, then they they saw an opportunity to do that with uh, with. Uh, little potential electoral pain um, but it turns out that they were both that well we don't know for certain until we get the uh, the breakdown um, but there's a, it can be reasonable to surmise that they were hit at there by uh, some of their core supporters at the top end but also uh, young people uh, too uh, looking at their their, their policy uh, their policy approach whereas labor as you point out uh, were were careful to sort of try and try and uh, keep over uh, to, to to attract over 65s uh, with some of their some of their policy approaches so it wasn't just a clear left right split here and uh, attract certain uh, certain groups yeah, young people in particular with with uh, um, their policy on tuition fees so uh, so I think there was a certain amount of possible cross-dressing at the uh, policy at, at the margins, but uh, it, I think it's more about the Conservatives were, were looking to soften up parts of the parts of the electorate, 
uh, and to, to free themselves from some of the some some of the policy areas that they they'd uh, they'd been locked into under under the um, Cameron Osborne years. Um, before we finish, Mark, uh, thank you very much. I know that leadership in particular is a very strong interest of yours. And I did want to mention your most recent book on leadership capital. Do you want to just give us a quick plug before we finish off? <laughs> yeah, thanks, John. Uh, it's interesting because we wrote something just before the uh, election about how Theresa uh, May was leaking uh, leadership uh, capital, uh, mainly through her U-turns on social care and uh, her very unconvincing electoral campaign performance. Uh, and we related this to the book that we have out with, with Oxford that's, uh, that's just re- released just before the election, um, where we were saying that leadership capital is based on three aspects. So the skills that you have, uh, the relations that you develop, uh, and, the, and the reputation uh, that you have. So we work around these that you may bring personal skills uh, into your leadership. Uh, so that may be, say, uh, Jeremy Corbyn's campaigning or Theresa May being found out uh, through not having the necessary skills. Uh, then there's the relations. Uh, so your relationship with the media, the electorate, the general public, uh, your cabinet colleagues or your shadow cabinet colleagues and so on, which is essential to building that collective leadership uh, that I talked about earlier. And then the third element, we talk about is reputation so you have to develop a reputation and Theresa May's reputation was at the home office and uh, she uh, used her record at the home office which was uh, heavily criticised as well Um, uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, his reputation was very much based on on winning leadership election um, um, uh, against the the odds as well and reaching out uh, beyond the uh, beyond the the, the narrow confines of the Labour Party so um, but they're both fairly inexperienced uh, leaders as well so we can't point to achievement in office yet there's limited achievement of Theresa May in office uh, and obviously Jeremy Corbyn has only been leader uh, of the opposition well however you uh, rate the policies of the various parties it I have to say when you put it in that frame it doesn't necessarily look terribly hopeful for Mrs Mm, May absolutely (laughs) you're listening to discussions in Tunbridge Wells the podcast from the Salomon Centre for Applied Psychology. Okay, that was uh, Mark uh, Mark Benister from our department talking about the election and the last few weeks. So, folks, how are we feeling about it and what has struck you about it? And remember, we're trying to think psychologically about it. We're not political scientists. No, we're not. So we're, not politi- we're, we're offering something... We're hopefully offering some of the psychology on this. Um, I I found Mark's framework very, very interesting. And, you know, I'm not really in a position to say whether I agree or disagree with it or not. But what struck me was, you know, he's got these three legs to a framework, skills, reputation and relationship. I would have to argue from a psychological perspective that it's relationships that is the key one of those. It would seem to me that as a politician, if you are not successful at forging and maintaining relationships with your constituency, with your would-be voters, you've had it really. Skills obviously comes into that, reputation obviously comes into that, but it's relationships that makes all of that work. Rachel? And interestingly, that was making me think, because I think 
um, when Jeremy Corbyn first became leader of the Labour Party, he was seen as not being particularly good at relationships. The Labour Party was in sort of disarray. There was lots of disagreement within the party that he wasn't able to bring the two separate sections of the party together. So it's interestingly that previously Jeremy Corbyn wasn't seen as being very good at relationships, whereas now he's being portrayed in a slightly different way, I would say. It's interesting that lots of the stories about... Um uh, Corbyn now are going to, I think, going to be spun very differently as he's, you know, in a slightly more ascendant position. So previously he would, you know, receive a lot of flack about, you know, being on holiday during some major political event and not taking the attack to the government. Now, if that happens again, I'm guessing he'll be seen as a, a sage looking at the big picture above the fray or something like, you know, or something like that. I mean, how quickly things can, how quickly things can change. Well, but then, then that's the reputation's <laughs> coming in isn't it that you know his reputation has changed as a result of increasing Labour's vote share but sorry Rachel, I was going to go back to relationships say? because yeah. just as recently as this week the images after the Grenfell fire where Theresa May was seen talking to a couple of firemen and looking very sort of distant whereas Jeremy Corbyn was pictured with his arm around one of the victims of the fire is, is quite different in terms of the relationships that they're trying to portray. I think Jeremy Corbyn was potentially better in terms of demonstrating his relationships with the electorate than Theresa May was in the run-up to the election, potentially, in terms of there was lots of images of Jeremy Corbyn talking to massive crowds of people, whereas the sort of spin was that Theresa May wasn't particularly good at engaging with the public. She was reluctant to do the TV interviews. She was reluctant to take part in any sort of debates with the general public. So I think that was a difference in terms of how they portrayed their relationships. You know, I just don't think Theresa May really understands the media. It seems to me that Corbyn has had on his side the idea of using social media behind mm. the scenes because he couldn't really rely on the mainstream mm. media, which was hostile to him mm. pre-election. And I think that was a massive part of the campaign because there seemed to be a shift perhaps in the mainstream media towards the end of their campaign who the mainstream media started to recognise that there was perhaps a bit of a swing towards Labour voters and I think that probably influenced quite a lot of the public because we know that there is a sort of herd mentality phenomena where people often want to vote the same as other people they know or other, other people more generally. So if in the media there is a sense that other people are perhaps changing and going to vote for Labour, the general public might start thinking, well, if other people are going to do that, then maybe I'll have the confidence to do that. Whereas I think the message earlier on in the election was it's going to be a landslide. And so I think people might think, well, if I'm not sure who I'm going to vote for, everyone else seems to be going to vote for Conservatives, so maybe that's what I'll do. So I do think that that was a relevant factor. Well, I'm wondering about, I mean, it's really funny actually listening to this because part of the what I'm hearing is that everything that was perceived as a limitation about Corbyn is now a strength and everything that was perceived as a strength about Theresa May is, is, perceived, as a, is perceived as a limitation. And I do take the point that, you know, she was quite a wooden campaigner uh, I mean, in some ways, I've often made the comparison, actually, between, it may come as a shock to some on the left, between her and Gordon Brown, actually, but they have always seemed to me to be quite similar in their, you know, kind of quite authoritarian, quite sort of puritanical, um, 
not necessarily always in a terrible way, but you know, it's just the way that they, insofar as you can be those things, not in a terrible way. But well, yeah, it, but just to come in there, Gordon Brown was somebody who had a great deal of gravitas, actually, intellectually, and he's probably more of an academic than he is a politician. He did wither in the light of an election campaign in a not dissimilar way to Theresa May, though. He did wither yes. in the, the, the heat of that scrutiny. Well, yes, and he was very poor at forging relationships with people. You know, he didn't know how to use the media at all. He came across as distant and wooden and, and so on. All, all the things that you could ascribe to Theresa May now. So, yes, I think there is similarity there. Well, when I was listening to Mark, I was wondering, the thing that it got me thinking of is not so much psychology, but marketing, really, mm-hmm. in some ways. I remember a few years ago, uh, I wrote a piece about uh, Lance Armstrong, the cyclist. And I said that the problem with Lance Armstrong, you know, he, was, he had basically been nailed for taking performance-enhancing drugs and you know could we forgive him for that uh, at the time I argued that the that the problem that he had was that he he basically trashed his own brand so the example I used was Tiger Woods the golfer now Tiger Woods was kind of a bit of a cold fish and he um, you know didn't he struggled to warm to the public you know but Theresa you know not unlike Theresa May in that way so how did they market him they marketed him as being a superior individual I'm sure I've said this before they marketed him as being a superior individual superior concentration it turned out when he had a parade of women throwing themselves at him he was just the same as lots of other people so it fundamentally undermined something about her or about his brand I'm so already thinking about Theresa May and I think in some way something came along her brand was all about being in control mm. And then when she did vacillate, I mean, David Cameron was able to change his mind all the time. She had a couple of changes of her mind and something fundamental about her was absolutely, specifically undermined by that. Yes, I think that, you know, from a a marketing media perspective, that's where the Tories went wrong with their Mm -hmm. campaign, really. That Theresa May was the brand, the campaign, Mm -hmm. the strong, stable leader. They kept referring, in fact, to Theresa May's Conservatives. Well, I needed a microscope set in my reading glasses, but actually a more powerful version of my reading glasses to see the conservative logo on the literature I got through the door. I think it is a concern when um, election campaigns are run based on personality and one person, when you know we really would like it to be much more about policy and ideas. Mm-hmm. Irish is not important. Lots of people said this to me during the campaign. It's about policies. Is it not about personalities as well? Well, again, come to the idea of relationships. Unless we've got politicians who are actually able to sell those policies to their constituents and they will need relationships to be able to do that, they they are not going to be successful. I mean, we're making a judgment about people's competence and about their, you know, on the basis of some of those things, we're making judgments about people's competence and character. And I think this was one of the places where Jeremy Corbyn certainly scored in the sense that he went in with his, you know, his expectation. I'm sure his team were partly involved in this as well, actually. Stories being thrown out saying Labour would only get 125 seats and things like that. Politicians are often quite good at this, you know, really, really dampening down expectations with the result that you know hopefully you know the public will realize that if they can just tie their own shoes they will you know that's a win 
kind of thing, you know. And in some sense, for Jeremy Corbyn, I mean, he I think he did have a reputation as being somewhat, you know, maybe with reason, somewhat not exactly petulant, but rather defensive in interview settings. And then all of a sudden, he was Mr. Sunny, optimistic guy. They had this manifesto that culled some of the more unpalatable, you know, you, some of the things that really scuppered, for want of a better word, labour in the 80s, you know, unilateral nuclear disarmament and things like that. It knocked some of the edges off. And actually, it was this, you know, wholesale nationalisation. It was actually this relatively middling manifesto, actually, in some ways, not actually as radical as their manifesto from two years ago, I thought. And they had that which brought, you know, the polytoinbees of this world who had been quite critical of him all of a sudden were actually very, very supportive of Labour. Well, I think that as well as personality, people do vote based on emotion. And I would say that the Labour manifesto was much more sort of positive and hopeful. And I think having gone through a long period of austerity and shock after the Brexit vote, people were looking for something positive and hopeful. So I think that that was another factor in the swing towards Labour person. Personally. Well, I'm wondering also about this whole notion of hope and uh, optimism and how that ties in with what feels like, and I'm aware that I've talked about this before, what feels to me like almost the defining flavour of politics over the last few years, which is populism and the sense of, I mean, Anne said this to me, a couple of other people have said this to me, I'm not, I can't remember who now you suggest that me using the word populism is a smear or a slur, but they encounter that negatively. But I tend to see it, I hope I use that word with a fair degree of precision. Uh, I'm thinking about, you know, big, quite simplistic answers to problems, um, a sense of uh, you know, being outsiders, you know, insurgents against the insiders, a sense of having scapegoats to blame, often the establishment or other people. That populist sense it has been there in different iterations with UKIP, with Donald Trump, with the Scottish National Party. Uh, um, they, you know, that's been a kind of very strong flavour running through our politics scene in Italy, to a certain extent in France. Certainly in my discussion with Mark, I cut out a little bit of this discussion, it went on rather, but it seems to me that in some ways Corbyn is the person who is the keeper of that flame at the moment. So is he a populist or is he an optimist? I, I certainly think there are populist elements in, in Corbyn's approach, but perhaps what has happened is that he has managed to kindle some kind of hope in people. And, you know, if we're talking about policies, it does seem that students in particular and young people were very taken with his his promise to squash student debt and to, to abolish tuition fees. Mm. I mean, why wouldn't they? And yet, if you look at the conservative side, their manifesto would... Um, the dementia tax was deeply unpopular with one of its core constituencies. I think those were, from a policy point of view, those were two things that one one that worked for Labour, the other didn't work for the Conservatives that were pivotal to the election campaign. For me, if we're, if we're going to go back to this idea of populism, I don't know if populism is the, is the term I would use, but I do think that perhaps parties are becoming slightly more extreme, either more left-wing or more right-wing. And for me, if we're trying to think about the psychology behind that, 
I wonder if in this age of social media, if there is somewhat of a confirmation bias that is influencing people, because we know that, that we have a cognitive bias where we seek out information that supports our own beliefs. And I think that with the way that social media is, and we follow people that have similar beliefs to us, we can become more and more and more convinced by our own arguments because we're having a filter all the time just looking for things that support our own beliefs and I think that can lead people to become more extreme in their views and it's therefore harder to understand other people's perspectives if they hold a different view to your own so I do think that has been going on potentially. I mean, in the context of that, it's actually tipped me off to the thing that I was kind of struggling to remember earlier about populism, which is this notion of the the connection to the true voice of the people. So, you know, Nigel Farage was the, the you know the true voice. Donald Trump styled himself the true voice. Nicola Sturgeon, um, though, obviously, there's been a real reversal on that side of it. There's a number of key planks for the Scottish nationalists have been somewhat undermined, I think, by this election, or so commentators argue. But at the moment, the, this idea of the attachment to the true voice of the people seems to be with Labour, um, insofar as I can cite the Daily Mirror in support of anything, um, the, a story that's been getting a lot of coverage in the last day or two is John McDonald's talking, you know, talking about people, you know, going out in the streets to, you know, to overthrow the, you know, overthrow the prime minister. I'm thinking, oh, hang on a minute, don't we have uh, have elections? Oh yeah, we just had one, and um, but you know that. So in some sense, if you like that, you know that voice of the true voice of the people is all. You know, it kind of slightly pushes to one side. The the sense of well, actually, there's loads of people who kind of disagree, but it sometimes feels this is incredibly emotionally intensified place. The feeling is so strong. The the contents of your Twitter feed, with mm. the, the exception of a few rogue elements. You know, can be full of people who essentially agree with yeah. you, and it can feel. Well, how did that happen? How did all those people vote mm-hmm. Labour or the Tories? How how did that happen? Well, I think yeah. I, I mean, I think what what you're both saying is very interesting. But to come back to Rachel and the idea of you know social media providing echo chambers yeah. for people in a sense, yeah. I think that's true. But it, it's not new. You know, if we go back to group identity theory and Tajfel. You know, Tajfel kind of demonstrated that we all needed to belong to a group mm. and that once we belong to a group, we're not easily going to transgress into other groups. Mm. We're kind of seeing that on bigger scale now because of social media, mm. but it's also become different because we're exposed to so much at any one particular moment. So, you know, I think it's true that we do seek out information that tends to bolster our own views but by the same token we're exposed to so much more now we've got to have some filters in place and we've got to make quite rapid decisions about what's happening. Mm -hmm. Well quite and in some ways that for me ties in that whole notion of social psychology ties in with uh, some evidence that's out there that we do actually look for scapegoats when the going gets tough you know we do actually look for people outside the group to blame when things are are difficult so you know i suppose the the ugliest parts of that narrative are around are around immigration mm-hmm. you know nigel farage was a, a real master at you know the stirring up or channeling feeling that was there about uh, about immigration about people outside outside the group are a simple place to put blame i mean it happens on the left as well uh, as i was saying before the podcast i saw plenty of posters around my own constituency using the phrase tory scum 
Mm-hmm. You know, one of them was saying that you're friendly collective. You're thinking, yeah, really friendly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, again, it's seeking an out, an out group or if you're in Scotland or Scottish nationalists, the sense of, you know, ultimately it's the English or the Union who are, you know, the source of ill. And, you know, it's, again, in that case, it's not necessarily totally connected to, to evidence, really, the notion that we're different. We're different from them. There's some. Um, there's an article in the Psychologist this month, June, by Roger Paxton, which talks about how um, parties, typically on the left and on the right, tend to make decisions based on slightly different values. So parties on the left would tend to make decisions based on notions of caring for others, of fairness, and of benevolence, whereas parties on the right would tend to make decisions based on values of security, safety, liberty, and achievement. Um, and who's to say which values uh, above which others? But it can therefore be difficult to understand how other parties are coming to a decision. And so they can be seen as different or not as good or uncaring when actually it's perhaps just a different, slightly different priority. Well, those biases are, are quite different. I mean, all of those values seem not bad to yeah. me, you know, kind of across the across the board. I was listening to a really interesting programme on Radio 4 uh, a few weeks ago with David Aronovich. Uh, talking about the fundamentals of taxation and how we pay for things and I've done a few experiments uh, with people uh, just asking them how much tax they think we pay on various things you know, half our tax burden apparently goes on two things those things are social care and health but the number of people I know who are you know broadly left-leaning who will say that one of those things is defense is, is quite overwhelming and you know actually defense is kind of pretty teeny-weeny Really, except it may not seem teeny weeny when you're getting, you know, regular Facebook postings. Oh, we can afford defence, but we can't afford, you know, we can't afford things for poor people. And similarly, uh, people who may be voting on what we would consider the right of the spectrum seem, you know, overestimate what we spend on things like foreign aid. So, uh, you know, perhaps some of those. Uh, value judgments do colour things. Also, the degree to which actually people who are well off pay taxes. I mean, that was one of the labour pitching a flay the rich. I mean, traditional labour pitch really, isn't it? But actually, when you look closely, it turns out people who are better off pay the vast majority of, you know, the vast majority of, um, you know, uh, enormous amounts, disproportionately large amounts of money come from people who are better off. Well, obviously, better off just simply means better off than me. Um, certainly in my own mind. Yeah, I guess it depends what the definition of better off is, doesn't it? But yes, I mean, of course our politics reflect our values. Why, why wouldn't they? And, you know, and I suppose in this election there seemed to be, we were sort of caught between the idea of is it better to reduce the deficit and save money or is it better to extend social welfare programmes and care for people? Well, that, that was very interesting, wasn't it? Because... In some way, the Tories weren't bashing on about deficit control in the way that they have been doing for the last few years. In fact, they much overlooked is that they're, and I do see this as one of the effects actually of the Labour, you know, insurgency from the left. Is it felt like the whole political conversation had been dragged to the left. So actually, you had the Tories making promises to. You know, well, they were effectively saying that they wouldn't maintain, you know, this idea of the triple lock on pensions, which is actually quite widely perceived to be unjust to younger people, you know, effectively buying off older 
older voters and that's I'm about to become an older voter in the next few years I have some concerns about that but you know they, they were they were talking about potentially raising taxes very untory and also this idea of the dementia tax struck me as really very interesting okay it's seen as a massive misfire in terms of policy but as I was saying to to Mark in some sense they were trying to have a conversation about how we how we solve this problem of elder you know of older people you know caring for um, for an aging population how we set that against our expectation of things like inheritances you know maybe it was very unwise in the middle of an election campaign but you know if they were talking about these kind of things has something happened the whole conversation feels like it's been dragged a bit to the left well, yes, but the Tories are still seen as the party of austerity, aren't they? So, you know, it did seem that the election was sort of divided between are we going to vote for more austerity or are we going to loosen things up and try and care for more people, as I saw it. But, but even in psychological terms, I mean, it's extraordinary, really, that the Tories came up with a policy that hit one of their core constituencies. Why would one want to do that psychologically? It could only be... I suppose you're trying to get a mandate for something that you feel is necessary and some pretty radical thinking around you know dealing with an older population is mm. is necessary. Whether this was the right way to go about it is a whole other thing, but you know, you're trying to do that while you're popular. I mean, God, I think they'll probably be and this is again something about relationships there was also seemed to be an issue of the relationship between the Prime Minister and her own colleagues in the sense that they floated and constructed that policy in a very very narrow group without having it sort of checked and tested even in a five minute meeting where somebody could put up their hand and say isn't, doesn't that sound like a dementia tax uh, you know and the things that you know message testing and things that you know that parties do around policies but in some ways I feel I've got very mixed feelings about that because it does feel that in some ways in that and winter fuel payments and things they were trying to drag something to the left though of course they were promising more austerity as well possibly even more than there had been actually because I think you can argue the toss about how much austerity has been certainly been a big increase in inequality but you know more austerity was on the way and if you're not bashing on about deficit control and you're not saying that that matters then why shouldn't people just turn around and say well why shouldn't we vote for Labour who are promising to spend tons more money if deficit control isn't a thing anymore. I mean, it is a concern, this sort of what is going to happen about social care in the future, because I think that is seen as one of the reasons that Conservative Party didn't do so well. So that's going to go on the back burner, which means that this issue of social care being massively underfunded and how we go about funding it more is probably not going to be addressed continually now. So there's there's a a deadlock still about that issue, which is a concern to me because I think... It may be toxic for any party. I think it would be probably toxic for any party, so that's a concern. But coming back to the idea of relationships, the so-called dementia tag has, I think, greatly damaged the Tories' relationship with some of its core constituents who are the over 65. Quite, quite, and as I say, it'll probably be on Theresa May's tombstone now really because in some of you I would certainly there had been a number of issues that I think had affected their you know challenged the core demographic of Tory voters which is among many other things older than the than the Labour than the Labour demographic but it does feel like it all came together at that point in that in that policy just come back to psychology for a minute I just wanted to just get before we finish off I just wanted to get some sense of the kind of feel of the election we've touched we've touched on this 
um, in a, a number of points in the discussion. But one of the things I was thinking of was an idea that I come back to in my mind quite often, which is the idea of the, the idea of splitting, the psychodynamic idea of splitting, that we, you know, we kind of actually tend, and it goes into your in-group, out-group idea mm-hmm. in Tajfell as well. It's very related to that, Angela. The, the idea that whatever the complexities of the issue, we get caught around these quite simple framings of it, and there's reasons, the, the psychological reasons why the narrative gets framed, you know, hope against pessimism, or leadership against chaos, or whatever these, and obviously the picture is a lot greyer, but certainly a lot of the encounters I had, people felt very, very split you know, tremendous kind of hatred towards the Tories or tremendous kind of fear, anger, paranoia towards, uh, you know, the Labour Labour leadership in these quite polarised places. Was that something that you encountered this time as well? Yeah, I, I think it's inevitable in any election, just as it's inevitable in any sports match, really. You've got to decide that one group's going to be the winner and one's going to be the loser and you can't be too sympathetic towards the other side in the sense that if you understand them too well you're not going to be able to go to war against them. You've almost got to be able to see one side as good and one as as bad because otherwise how do you go into that little booth on election day and confidently make your cross. If you're in there thinking, ooh, ooh, maybe, you know, if you're kind of wavering and thinking, well, ooh, maybe it's maybe I should be going for the other one, there's good things about them too, that creates a very difficult position, doesn't it? But you would have to have decided that one was better than the other to make your cross. So in doing that, you're in something of a split position mm-hmm. whereby you've position the other group as if not altogether bad somewhat worse than the one you're voting for. Some people are arguing that the splitting and the anger is potentially worse currently due to the increasing inequality in society. Mm. I don't know what we think about that but I think there's probably some truth in that, Mm. that feelings are higher now as inequality is increasing. It's felt to me certainly that way over the last few years. I mean, look at the extraordinary political things that we've, you know, that we've witnessed in the last few years. You know, we've had, you know, this very very left-wing insurgency in the Labour Party. We had a surge in support for the Scottish Nationalists, who are essentially quite a centrist party, I think. We had, you know, Donald Trump, becoming the US president. I mean, it still seems unbelievable. He's been in office for quite a number of months now. Um, though admittedly, in some respects, the way he was running anyway, he was running on a very un-Republican ticket. He was running on quite a left-wing populist ticket with the Bernie Sanders insurgency, we've had things in Italy. And of course, we voted to leave. We voted to leave the EU. All the complexities of that decision being boiled down to a simple leave or or remain. And I do think there's something in what you say. You know, we, had, we had a big recession uh, you know, the credit crunch, which became a recession, increasing inequality. In- inevitably, yeah. When there's more inequality, more people are going to be under threat. The more threat there is, the more the positions are going to, going to become binary. Mm-hmm. Because when we're under threat, any one of us can get into mm-hmm. projection and splitting. Mm-hmm. It's something we have to do to survive. Mm-hmm. So the notion of splitting the world into you know good and bad, yes. but projection in terms of 
you know, projecting out complicated feelings into one side or, you know, one side or another. This is very kind of Melanie Klein. I read a good paper which I do for a seminar with um, some of the groups here called The Decline of Traditional Defences Against Anxiety. And it's written at the end of the 80s, which was again also a period of a lot of ferment and change. And it's, it's often felt that it's been very relevant now in the sense that we perhaps lose some, you know, or some of us anyway, lose some faith in you know either institutions or particular consensus. I mean, we've got the second in command of the Labour Party telling us to take to the streets and overthrow the Prime Minister. Apparently, um, you know, we lose some faith in some of our institutions and processes, or perhaps our you know neoliberal centre, neoliberal centre ground, and then we're left with these things which you know in some ways are different I'm not saying that Jeremy Corbyn the Scottish Nationalists and Trump and Brexit are all the same thing but I do wonder if psychologically at least some of the support for them is coming from not dissimilar thought processes of you know jumping one way or the other being you know really clear about your your group your identity we become more tribal when we're under threat we're more likely to want to take refuge in a group which seems to be right and that that's been the case since time immemorial really we've we've organized ourselves into groups from the moment we arrive on on the planet and that was about sharing resources it was about shoring up defenses it was about enabling us to survive and it isn't really any different these days, except that we're doing it with a lot of technology behind us now and a lot of sophistication in, in the media and so on, which can either be harnessed to the advantage of a group or to the disadvantage of a group. And a politician who knows how to play that is going to be the winner, I'd say. Well, uh, Angela, we're clearly haven't evolved sometimes quite as much as we perhaps think we have. I think that seems like a very good note uh, on which to stop. The best way to follow the podcast is to subscribe. You can do that on iTunes or SoundCloud by searching for discussions in Tunbridge Wells. You can also usually do that on any podcatcher of your choice. Uh, we'll post some links to some of the things that we've discussed on the show page on our blog, Discursive of Tunbridge Wells. As well as that, you can follow us on Twitter at CCC app Psy that's A-P-P-S-Y and on Facebook if you look for Canterbury Christchurch University Applied Psychology all that remains for me to do is to thank our contributors um, this is uh, you know the feelings have run high over the last few weeks so you know I'm very glad that we can come and you know actually hopefully put to bed some of our uh, some of our feelings about it I expect our discussions will go on especially as things are so unresolved uh, but also thank you to you for listening uh, we'll be back soon hopefully uh, we have a various things in in the pipeline including something thinking a bit more broadly about this issue of how we fund the public sector but hopefully we'll be back with that or something else soon thank you very much thank you.